Eastside Radio 89.7 FM. This is Arts Monday, Simpoesi, streaming to you from the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. My name is Ira, and I'm just about to start a call to dancer, choreographer, academic and musician Laura Osweiler, and we will be talking about her latest work, Waited in Time, which is developing and presenting as part of the coming March Dance Festival supported by Critical Path. Waited in Time explores Laura's experiences of living with cataplexy, which is a form of neurological sleep disorder, and we will find out more about this condition and the movement languages that it informs in just a few minutes. Laura, good morning. Do we have you on the line? Yeah, good morning. Hello. Where are we finding you this morning? What surrounds you as we speak to you? Yes, I am on Camera Gallland. Right now, I am looking at a set of trees through my window and the wind going through the trees and some beautiful gray clouds going by. So I'm in a very special, beautiful spot. Beautiful. <laughs> and what are your mornings usually like? Are you um, somebody who has morning ritual, something that you do from day to day? Or is it more, um, you know, adjustable and fluid and you just decide on the day how the morning will start or how the day will start? Yeah, my mornings tend to be right now a little bit flexible and fluid. Uh, for me, the mornings are generally my most energized time. So I usually um, get myself up and then I try to do some sort of workout or creative practice in the morning and then uh, try to do some of my um, sort of more admin stuff where I teach dance and things that have to be sort of more awake for I try to do in the mornings. Mm -hmm. So not quite many rituals, but um, I do have my ritual walking in the evenings at, late at night. So that's also nice as a way to get outside and be in nature. Mm, beautiful. As I briefly mentioned in the introduction, uh, your latest project is called Waited in Time, and it explores your personal experience with cataplexy. And cataplexy, as we will find out, is a form of neurological sleep disorder. Can you tell us a bit more about this condition and how it manifests in the body? Yeah, definitely. Thank you for asking that. Um, there are two types of narcolepsy. There's type one with cataplexy, and there's type two that does not have cataplexy. And within narcolepsy, as you mentioned, it is a neurological sleep disorder where the body and the mind aren't always on the same plane when it comes to being awake or asleep. So sometimes that those lines begin to blur. And there are several symptoms within narcolepsy. And someone who has this disease does not necessarily have all the symptoms, but they include cataplexy, which I'll come back to in a second, um, excessive daytime sleepiness, in which you're tired regardless of how much you sleep or the quality of sleep. You can have sleep attacks where you fall asleep or have micro sleep attacks where some people will be talking and they fall asleep and then they wake mm -hmm. up and keep talking. There's also sleep paralysis where you can't move when you're waking up or going to sleep. And also sometimes people will have hallucinations when they're waking and, and uh, falling asleep as well. Mm -hmm. So there's a number of symptoms. And then, like I said, not everybody has those symptoms. Uh, each symptom has its own sort of spectrum of mild to severe, and each of us will work on also our own spectrum within uh, our symptoms. So 
to come back to cataplexy, cataplexy is when someone is awake and there's often a trigger that can be an emotional trigger like laughing or kind of getting surprised and the muscles release. And on one end, on the mild end, that might show up as maybe a slack jaw. On the other end, which is much sort of severe, is when the body, the person will collapse and they can't capture themselves before they fall to the ground. Mm -hmm. And so that is the cataplexy. Um, mm -hmm. And so it, it can be often a relaxation of a muscle, the, rele the muscles release in the body. Mm -hmm. And as part of this experience, as somebody who has background in dance and movement, I um, believe that you have developed quite a, a few new uh, knowledges about the body and you're currently developing this work that is unpacking the physical experience of living with this condition and you're creating new dance languages that emerge from that. So I've been curious uh, to know what type of movement repertoire has unfolded through this experience. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, it's it's done. A, I, I use I use it in a couple of different ways. It's created. It's been supportive in several different ways. One I'll just mention is that I can use dance and choreographic practices to explore when I'm having an episode. So if I'm on, if I'm having like a bad episode, I can sit in my body, and even though my body may not be moving, I can use dance vocabulary to explore like what is the weight what might have some amount of movement is, you know, what's sort of happening internally in terms of either maybe pain or, um, you know, just what's happening within the body. So I'm using vocabulary to look at what's happening during the event. Mm -hmm. And then taking some of that and bringing that back into a dance performance space. For example, if I'm, on the floor and I'm having what I would call sort of my nirvana state, which is sort of a moment of often sometimes bliss where I'm part of the space, I'm part of the room. Um, I can then use those descriptions and bring that into performance space and give the audience some ideas of what's that like. You know, my body feels like it's expanding. It feels like it's filling up the room. Mm. It feels like a like blowing up a balloon. So there's sort of these sort of descriptive words that can help to translate the internal to an external audience. Mm. As part of this work and this project, you are also using this term that we dancers know really well, body language or body knowledge. How would you describe to those of us who maybe are not so embodied, what is body knowledge meaning to you? Yeah, the body knowledge means listening and being in your body. Mm. And so when I'm having a cataplexic episode, my body is sort of not really working. And so I'm, I'm sometimes more in my mind, but using my mind to explore the body to see what's happening to be curious about it. I think it's about being using it to be curious, and to learn what's happening. Um, and to trust your body and mm. to that's that's for me is, is trusting the body and being with it so it's that meditative kind of concept of being with the body mm. and trusting it mm. um i can i can give another example of 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 a of, of listening to the body so when when i'm having an episode especially if i'm having a bad episode 
my knees will release, my knees will buckle, right? So there's often a quick buckling of the knee. Mm -hmm. And I have a dance practice uh, that uses what we call a knee shimmy. So you're in a standing position and you're alternating your knees. You're not locking your knees, but you're alternating your knees. And so it creates this bounce to the body. So because I have this foundation of a knee shimmy, when my knees buckle, there's not so much horror or trauma or fear that this is happening. So it's a sense of familiarity. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's part of the body language is, is having, um, like I have a vocabulary that helps me with my episode. It's also, if you're having an episode, finding ways that you can then go back and support the body. So mm-hmm. I would say, you know, if you're having knee buckling, learn how to do a knee shimmy, mm-hmm. right? So that's a way of listening to the body. Mm. So if I'm hearing you well, uh, it actually means that having this body language can assist in dealing with this condition and uh, help us, you know, um, move towards familiarity rather than stay in the space of fear, as you were saying. And then also I was uh, wondering whether dance as practice itself has assisted you in dealing with it. And if so, in, in what ways? Oh, definitely. I think like, you know, using the niche in me is helpful. Um, having uh, the ability to go up and down to the floor and having that leg strength to go up and down the floor, mm. which comes from my dance practice is really helpful. If I'm starting to have an episode that the body has some amount of strength that it can rely on. Um, and I would say also this working on and developing this piece is a way of me managing the illness, a way of exploring, of being creative, of um, sort of taking some ownership and power over it. Mm-hmm. And even though it's, it does come at times, it does have its own power at times, but it's really the process, the creative process, I think is really important to help manage and deal with, with issues. Mm-hmm. I, I read somewhere in another interview mm-hmm. that you gave uh, about this project, how having this research space uh, allowed you to create safe space around uncertainty that you were dealing with in relationship to this condition? Is this something that uh, you have just touched upon as you said uh, how dance has helped you? Was it a place of uncertainty that this creative process has allowed unfolding? Yeah, I think uncertainty is a big part of chronic diseases and terminal illnesses. It's not understanding uh, what's happening and and finding ways that you can explore that. And so in my last residency, it was it was difficult because I'd never really talked to anybody about what was mm-hmm. happening. And so to be in a position where most of the time when I'm with my collaborators, I am maybe not quite fully present that I am mm-hmm. in sort of a, a sort of a different space. You know, I'm maybe slurring my speech or I'm not able to move or the fact that I need to have breaks. And so it's really important to have a space where people understand and are there with you and can support you on exploring and coming on this journey with me which is really important. Mm-hmm. You're on ESED Radio 89.7 FM and you're listening to Arts Monday Simpoesis. 
We are in conversation with dancer and choreographer Laura Osweiler talking about her work Waited in Time, which she is developing and presenting as part of the coming March Dance Festival. And as you have just heard in this work, Laura explores and expresses experiences of living with cataplexy, which is a form of neurological sleep disorder. Laura, you uh, have a formative dance experience uh, in a traditional and contemporary Middle Eastern dances. Could you speak to us a bit about your background as a dancer and how this original, for you, original dance languages have informed the new work, if if they do in any way? Yeah, um, I, I kind of grew up with a ballet background and then I started taking Middle Eastern dance in uni and became very much hooked into it. I think I have now a 30-year career of of studying and teaching and producing within Middle Eastern dance. And um, my personal sort of style that I do as as being an American is what we would call American ballet dance. Mm -hmm. And this has a long history in the United States. Um, Not to go into great details, but at some point in like the 40s, 50s and 60s, because there's a lot of people coming from the Middle East, a lot of diaspora communities that came together, musicians and dancers would share their dance forms and their music forms. And it started creating an American sort of style. So you might have movements from Turkey, you might have movements from Morocco, you might have movements from Egypt. And so they all kind of started coming together. And so that's the style that I was brought up to teach and I do, it's my commercial form. And that has always, and it'll always be my foundation in terms of the style of dance. And so anything that I do in terms of my creative work is always based in that vocabulary, in those movements and those stylings. And so um, just an example, and I mentioned a few minutes ago, the Nishimi. The Nishimi is an Egyptian movement, and I bring it up quite a bit in this new work, but I bring it up in different ways. So whereas a nishimi is done on two feet, I might do a nishimi on one foot, or I might change my posture. I might twist my torso. I might, you know, move my head and look behind me. Um, I might add something like a a huge knee release. So a nishimi is consistent movement, and I might add like a bigger movement that drops the body down. So it's taking those foundational movements and sort of working with them and playing with them so they can uh, communicate what this work is about. Mm. And as you speak about this uh, new movement repertoire, I'm hearing that there is a lot of uh, inclusion of minute movements, smaller movements than we as dancers are used to. Is this also something that you have started exploring this beauty in, in small rather than large and monumental kind of shapes? Yeah, exactly. Because Middle Eastern dance, especially the belly dance forms that I learn, are there's a lot of isolation. So there's you're moving something like your chest and not your hips, or your hips and not your you know your or your not your chest, or your hips might be doing like a quick movement, but your chest might be doing something very smooth and fluid. So it's it tends to be much more within the boundaries of the body. And what's been interesting for me is because I've been working with this new work with working with a dance bungee, which I've never done before. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that has its own vocabulary. And I've been 
not using the bungee to jump off but and to jump into the air but i'm using it as uh as claire hicks called it grounded aerial work so i'm using it to stay on the ground as a support mechanism mm. and so when most people use a bungee right they're jumping and they're leaping and they're twirling and they're spinning i am using it where i go to the edge of the extension so it's like that tension between the bungee at its extension mm. before it pops back and then doing some of those isolated movements, doing the hip movements, doing arm movements. And so using the Middle Eastern dance vocabulary with, within this framework of the bungee. Mm. And then, as you were mentioning, you're also using these uh, visual descriptions uh, of what you're actually going through inwardly as you are executing these movements and perhaps this is where one of your collaborators enters and this is Sarah <laughs> Hubolt, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly yeah. uh, who is an uh, international circus physical theater performer and audio describer. What drew you to collaborate with Sarah and how does her expertise uh, complement the project? Yeah, so I met her um, when I was working at, as the general manager at Critical Path. And for those who don't know Critical Path, Critical Path is a dance and choreography research facility in Rush Cutters Bay. I kind of think of it as a uh, think tank for dance. Mm -hmm. So I met her then, and I wanted to start bringing in audio description into my work because I think it's really important uh, to create, continue to create inclusive work. And it's something that I hadn't learned. So I started working with uh, Sarah on learning audio description. And when I started working on this piece, I knew she had an aerial background. So it's been kind of nice to work with her because I don't know anything about really about aerial. So it's nice to actually work with somebody. And um, she also has a really great storytelling ability. Mm -hmm. And so she's really encouraged me in this work to bring in my story. And so I've been trying to do that. I've been trying to bring in this visual description, um, my sort of autobiography material into the work, which is, like I said, something that's very different for me. And I've been playing with how I'm going to do that as well, because part of cataplexy is that you kind of lose the ability to speak. Mm -hmm. So how do I bring some of these things in when I'm not necessarily always able to speak? So using recording or using other people to uh, speak for me. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. You're listening to the voice of Laura Osweiler. She is a dancer, performer and academic based here in Sydney. And we are talking about her latest work, Waited in Time, which she's developing and presenting as part of the coming March Dance Festival. This is Eastside Radio 89.7 FM. Laura, apart from your rich background in dance and specifically, as we were saying, Middle Eastern dances. You also happen to have a background in music. You studied violin and specialized in Indian and Chinese traditional music. How does this musical background complement your approach to choreography? And do you think of yourself as primarily a musician who then um, comes from this creative side into dance or, or is dance your core language? <laughs> or is that, or, or is that, you know, a futile question to, to start with as well? Because they are kind of the same, I suppose. No, it's not futile at all. No, um, I would definitely call myself a choreographer now. My my music career 
even though I, I still play finger symbols, my, my music career is long gone mm. <laughs> at this point. So, um, I mean, I was always a dancer, but yeah, I mean, growing up, I was, I was a violinist and I went to school and on for the violin and then ended up getting an ethnomusicology degree, which I was yeah, studying Chinese and Indian music. Um, but shortly after that, the dance world took over. Um, but <laughs> which is really nice. Um, but I think in terms of how how that background helps me is that I think one I, f I feel I feel music. I think I learn music in a very quick way, and I um, can pull out the different melodies and the tempos and the rhythms in a very quick way, often on the spot. And I feel like I just there's I have this connection to music I don't know how to describe it except sometimes I just want to be music mm. and I think for me dancing is a way to sort of be the music and that's part of the belly dancing Middle Eastern background as well is that as a dancer you are a visual representation of the music mm. and I think that is a big part of who I am and so if I'm listening to something that's violent then I can move like the violin if I listen to something that's much more percussive then the movements become percussive. And so, yeah, I think I learned things very quickly because I had that music background. I learned the phrases and the breaks and the patterns pretty quickly. Mm. And I think I also, when I don't have a composer, I also will look for music and then start editing. So I'll edit music together for the pieces when I'm, sort of as a hold for the music mm. reading for a composer. That's helpful, having the extra skill, <laughs> if you ever, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and in terms of the music that inspires you to create movement, to create choreographies, um, firstly, I was curious what has, you know, been uh, an inspiration uh, for a long time, but also whether that, that has changed uh, as a consequence of this experience of living with cataplexy. Is the music you use for the new work in any way different to your previous music choices? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think I go through phases of what I listen to. I mean, and I also have a very sort of broad palette. I think it depends on what I want to say with the dance. I might go towards one style of music toward or another. Um, but most of the time, I would say I tend to go for music that tends to be very dense in texture. Mm -hmm. that has often very beautiful melodies, like super luscious, beautiful melodies with uh, a lot of, of things happening behind, underneath it, um, things that kind of come in and out or uh, asymmetrical rhythms. So I tend to like very dense, and that could be anything from something like Monteverdi, which is a Renaissance composer, to... Um, you know, like Nine Inch Nails, not necessarily always the most melodicness, but, it's you know, <laughs> yeah, it's quite a shift, you know, and, or someone like Azam Ali, who is this beautiful um, contemporary Persian singer, or, or someone like Agnes Obel, who is um, also another lovely singer, but she does a lot of uh, piano and orchestral work so I think it, it kind of depends on what I'm looking for mm -hmm. but I definitely have to feel my music like I can if I don't feel my music then it's it's, it's hard for me to find a connection with it but mm -hmm. but often when I'm creating a work like this work 
I have ideas of different sections. And so I will go into my library and start listening to listening and seeing what of the pieces sort of like connect and why does it connect into that section. Mm. And has uh, the have the choices changed in any way since having this experience? Has your musical taste maybe changed in any different direction or been affected um, by it? Yeah, I mean, I think I've had cataplexy for a long time. I think in the past few years, I would say, because there's lots of other sort of things materializing as well, I'm tending to go for more maybe slower music mm-hmm. <laughs> and something that's a little more um, meditative, but I also still like the electronic and I don't know, I still like my pop music too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think because this work is about the cataplexy, the music tends to be a much more uh, slow in its feel. Mm-hmm. Another thing that you explore as part of uh, this experience and this project Waited in Time is creep time and space. Could you talk a bit to that and maybe uh, starting by explaining what creep time and space mean for those those of us who are less familiar and also then how you work with them or within them? Yeah, I think so. Crypt time is a, a word that we're, we're using more and more to indicate that someone's not living in a normative time frame in terms of scheduling. So uh, if I take just normative time as like, you know, working from nine to five or that you, someone might be up from like 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. or that there's idea that you have to have certain things done at a certain time, like graduating high school at a certain age. So there's sort of these cultural normatives And so what happens is that some of us don't necessarily live in those times. And because of that, barriers start to emerge. And so we get barriers to how we can live, how do we work. Um, and so that's sort of what norm, uh, crypt time is. And for me, crypt space is kind of along that line too, because, and it goes with what I might also say, crypt energy, mm-hmm. that I don't always have time I don't always have time and energy to do things and so a lot of us who have a lot of these diseases tend to become what I call home located or partially home located and where your house your space becomes your domain mm-hmm. and you're not always able to go out into the world mm-hmm. right because it takes energy so this you start having this your crypt space is your house or where you're living mm. and it's difficult to get out of that. Mm. So it's this idea of that there's barriers that are occurring rather than looking at how um, those of us live certain ways that could actually benefit um, those who live in a more normative time frame. Um, I think just for example, I think most of us have realized those who got were able to stay home during COVID realized the benefits of sort of being at home and having maybe a slightly different sense of time mm-hmm. that what that has produced positively in their world. And so there are those of us who work in this way because we're, we have these is- diseases and it can be difficult to not have the energy or the time to go out. But at the same time, there has to be, um, has to, we have to look at that and see what sort of benefits could be happening. Absolutely. I'm personally very passionate in redefining 
the structure of time as we have created it in the West. Because mm-hmm. uh, I also don't feel too comfortable living within nine to five <laughs> schedule, uh, <laughs> yeah. just by the nature of who I am. So I'm very grateful for the work that you are doing in that space, because it, as you say, opens the different kind of space for all of us, and we all benefit from it. Um, and then as somebody who works uh, in creative sector as you do, I'm also aware that at the same time, the infrastructure that exists there or methodologies that exist are not yet adjusted. So uh, I assume that you have uh, confronted quite a few obstacles and, uh, you know, there are a few battles to fight. Um, what do you need from institutions, from infrastructures, from the working methodologies uh, to, to make this possible this new approach to productivity even possible it's a big question i'm sorry (laughs) i know it's a huge question question. maybe just the idea of of productivity (laughs) is huge onto itself and um Mm. and this constant need to create and be active and to be seen um Mm -hmm. i mean i think for me in some ways it's there's small things that can happen like um for me like going places can take a lot of my time and energy, right? And so having either someone take me someplace or um, having space on the other end to recover. Uh, when I'm at critical paths, I bring, and I'm there for 12 hour runs, mm-hmm. I bring sheets and a pillow and there's a couch. So I work and then I take a break and then I work and I take a break. So I have a place to lay down and sleep or to just relax. So I think that's really important to have a place for people to relax. Um, I think also there's times where if I'm doing something and I'm really sort of headstrong, I know I need time to recover afterwards. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also p- trying to build in those cushions into time. Mm, for beautiful. People. And I think it just goes for everybody. Yeah, that, mm. that's the cushion. Mm. And in terms of sort of also just um, one of the difficulty things as well, sort of one of those barriers I can tell you is in terms of institutional barriers is something like Instagram. So Instagram rewards people when they post all the time, right? You have to constantly post. But if you're someone who lives in crypt time, space and energy, you can't post all the time. So you're constantly being punished by Mm -hmm. that system. So that's an example, just one example of of those barriers not being taken account of. Mm-hmm. And and I would also, I would also add one other thing to that too, is that when um, I'm working and I'm doing a lot of intense work, that there needs to be accommodation that I might be slurred, that I might have brain fog, that I might be sort of muscles might be relaxed, right? So that there is an understanding and an acknowledgement it's not about having sympathy, but it's an acknowledgement that that's happening mm-hmm. and that there's um, space for that to happen in a workplace or in a creative space mm. that goes into creating the safe space again. Mm. You're listed Radio 89.7 FM. This is Arts Monday Simpoesis, and we are talking to dancer-choreographer Laura Osweiler, who is telling us about her experiences of living with cataplexy and the work that is emerging from that, which is called Weighted in Time, and it's being developed and presented as part of the coming March Dance Festival. Laura, if I'm correct, uh, you will be uh, having some kind of showing, maybe a bit informal or formal showing, of this 
piece work as part of March Dance on the 16th of March. Can you tell us a bit more about that, what we can expect and uh, do we have to book or just show up and so on? Yeah. yeah. So um, on March 16th, yeah, at Critical Path and online, because I am a firm believer in hybrid work. Mm-hmm. At 6 p.m., I'll be doing a sharing. So I have a four-day residency at March Dance at Critical Path. And so I'm going to be working with my collaborators. So this will be uh, a presentation of what I've been working on with that. And if you go to March Dance website, mm-hmm. you go to March Dance and you look at Laura Osweiler, there will be, if not today, hopefully shortly, a link to Eventbrite. And you can sign up to either come in person or to watch via Zoom. Wonderful. Laura, thank you so much for taking time and energy to talk to us this morning. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. I really appreciate it. You're on ESET Radio 89.7 FM. We will have a short break now with some music that was selected by our guest, Laura Osweiler. And after that, uh, we will come back uh, about quarter past 11 and be in conversation with another March Dance Festival artist, performance maker Aslam Abdus Samad, who is developing work called I Can't Sleep, which will be showing at East Sydney Community and Arts Centre on uh, 17th and 18th of March. Conceived through tired eyes, I Can't Sleep is an interdisciplinary solo performance and finding autobiographical stories and folklore to examine sleeplessness. You're on Eastside Radio. <laughs> 